Good afternoon, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath here at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C., and this is a program that we've been doing for six years exactly. I think this is our sixth anniversary, sixth year anniversary, and we've been doing it every month. This is a program where we cover a recent development in OSHA law, or occupational safety and health law, and we try and cover it in about 30 minutes, and we do this program about every 30 days. I'm joined today by my colleague here at Keller and Heckman, Javane Nakumaram. Javane, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome. You're welcome, Manish. So, so Javane, we have a great topic today. It's a case that came out uh, of an administrative law judge uh, decision uh, out of the Atlanta district, and this is the case, Secretary versus TMD Staffing. I think this is interesting for two reasons. One, uh, I think that staffing industries really represent the uh, sort of the epicenter or the crossroads of a lot of labor, employment, and occupational safety and health concepts. And second of all, I think it's safe to say that this case covers an interesting doctrine of OSHA law, which is whether or not and the degree to which an employer has any control over the workplace, the processes, and thereby the hazards that may arise out of the, the physical setup or the processes being used. So so Secretary versus TMD staffing, I think, is a great case for today's OSHA 3030. It was one of the cases that you had picked up on, so thank you very much for that great job. So with that said, I should point out, and as I mentioned before, this is our sixth anniversary uh, this month, and all or almost all of our prior episodes of the OSHA 3030 have been libraried on our website, and you can go through them. Many of those are for topics that are still extremely educational, extremely relevant to in-house counsel responsible for environmental safety and health or for safety and health professionals. And those can be found at our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. That's com slash OSHA 3030. And uh, and in addition, we rebroadcast this program for the past couple of years as a podcast. And so if you haven't subscribed yet, I ask you all here in the OSHA 3030 community to make sure you subscribe to the OSHA 3030 so that you can get it just automatically downloaded to your phone. Uh, then you don't have to uh, be tethered to your desk when you catch it or send it to others. So with that said, Javane, why don't we get into what we're going to talk about today. I think the first thing we ought to do is talk about, uh, let's provide an overview of the Secretary versus TMD staffing case and the facts behind the case and how the citation was uh, issued or why. And, and then I think we should cover the employer's arguments and uh, in defense against that citation uh, and then talk a little bit about their predominantly one of their defenses, which was the idea that as a staffing company they didn't have control over the work site uh, or the lack of control work of the worksite defense. And then I think we should talk about the administrative law judge's decision and his, her rationale uh, in issuing the decision. Finally, as we always do, we should wrap up with a practical discussion of what employers should do in light of this decision. So with that said, Javane, why don't we get into the facts of the case? Right. In this case, uh, Hightower Metalworks, or HMW, they owned and operated a steel fabrication facility in Houston. And for about 25 years, HMW had hired workers supplied by TMD staffing to work at their facility. 
So they employed about 10 to 11 workers through TMD to operate their fabrication machines on a daily basis. So there were four pieces of machinery that TMD employees operated that were at issue in this case. So the first is uh, what they call a bending roll or a plate roll, which is used to roll metal sheets into circular shapes. And the second was called an iron worker machine, and that machine's used to punch holes, cut flat bars and angle and notch metal. And the third and fourth machines were two different press brakes, which were used to bend sheets of metal. So in this case, uh, a TMD employee was operating the bending roll, and while he was inserting a sheet of stainless steel between the rollers of the plate roll in order to make a pipe, the rolls caught his left glove and pulled his index finger into the point of operation, uh, crushing it. So his finger was, unfortunately, it had to be amputated due to complications. And so about 20, 21 days after the accident, OSHA compliance, uh, safety and health uh, officers inspected the facility and recommended that OSHA issue citations to both HMW and TMD. Uh, so they cited HMW as the creating uh, and the controlling employer, whereas TMD was the exposing com- employer. So uh, just a reminder, uh, the controlling employer is an employer who uh, has general supervisory authority over a work site, and an exposing employer is the employer whose own employees are exposed to a hazard. One of the interesting things about this, these facts, Javane, I noticed that when he, he was operating the machine and had a, a piece of sheet metal uh, just before his glove got caught in the machine, the piece of sheet metal had kind of slipped out of position. So what he was doing at the moment was reaching over after he had already uh, sent the signal for the uh, press to engage. He was uh, reaching over to straighten it out at the last second, and that's when his glove got caught, and the glove getting caught kind of sucked his whole hand in, and he reached with his other hand to try and stop the machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, his finger had already been crushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was hospitalized immediately, right. and after being in the hospital for a week, uh, ultimately they, they just couldn't save the finger and had to amputate. Right. But but I think that the important fact there is that at the last second, he was reaching in to try and straighten the machine, the, the piece of metal, the material just before the machine uh, engaged. And it's a it's an impulse that I don't think he... I can speculate, I don't know, but I don't think he thought through whether or not he had the timing right or whether it was a safe thing to do. I think it was one of those impulse motions that sometimes uh, maybe anybody might be prone to, and at the last second he, he calculated he could get in and out mm-hmm. and straighten that piece out and get his hand back out in, in time. Uh, but it was clearly not what or how uh, the workers had been trained to do it properly. Right. They'd clearly been trained to remove their hands before uh, engaging the machine. And so, so in fact, that's one of the defenses that TMD that's raised. Right. That's right. So OSHA cited uh, TMD for failing to provide guards for the four machines, uh, for four different machines used by TMD supplied employees, including the machine that this employee was using. So in particular, uh, they cited uh, TMD for uh, failing to provide a guard for the point of operation of an iron worker machine at the punch station. And they also alleged that TMD failed to provide guards for the points of operation for both of the press brakes and for the bending roll, which was the machine that this employee was using. 
Uh, and I will note that following the citation, HMW actually uh, settled with OSHA and installed guards for these machines. But um, but it is here that TMD is challenging the citation. Yeah, it's interesting. Hightower Metalworks uh, rolled up its uh, citation contest and just re- resolved it through settlement. And TMD essentially raised a citation contest, and their defenses were, you know, we're, we're a staffing agency. We've had a relationship with Hightower for maybe 20 years to supply all five employees who operate the machines, but we've got, you know, tens of clients out there or dozens of clients out there, uh, and Hightower Metalworks is just one of them, and we, we're not in their business. So the first argument they made was, look, uh, we should point out that our employees didn't have or shouldn't have had access to unguarded points of operation in the sighted machines. And uh, that's because they were trained to stand at a safe distance away from the machine, as measured by where they're standing. Second of all, the, the TMD staffing as the employer didn't have knowledge uh, like Hightower had about how safe operations should look or what machine guarding should be used. That's Hightower Metalworks's problem. We supply the staff. They should be in control of their machinery. We don't know their industry, and we don't know the same things they do in order to make a proper hazard assessment and wouldn't recognize whether or not a machine was deficient in terms of Section 212, the machine guarding standard. Uh, Then they also said, look, since we've trained employees not to put their hands in to the zone of danger while they're operating the machine, they need to position the metal, then remove their hands from the zone of danger, and then engage the machine's operation that when that employee did so, it was unpreventable employee misconduct, a defense that, Jovenet, as you know, we've talked about here at the OSHA 3030 in several different episodes uh, covering several different cases. And then finally they said, look, we we don't have any control over the work site. Even if we had noticed what uh, machinery they were using and the deficiency in machine guarding, then we wouldn't have been able to just go fix their machines to make them compliant. We, we can't do anything to the workplace. We don't have control, and we don't have the contractual right. So it's not in the contract. And so this is the prerogative and the responsibility of Hightower. And we, because we have a lack of control over the work site, we, we don't think we should be cited for this. Now, it's that last defense that really we're all gathered here today on this case for, because I think that the lack of control argument sounds quite compelling, particularly when you talk about staffing agencies. We're not just talking about a general contractor and a subcontractor both of whom are working together at the same work site. We're not talking about a subcontractor who's providing staff, but they're also providing the supervisor for that their own staff. In the sense of a true staffing agency, they're merely sending workers over. And it would be the engaging employer's duty to train them up and to make changes in the workplace, make sure the workplace is safe. Uh, and so when you talk about a staffing agency, it is a fascinating subset of the workplace uh, where the whole multi-employer worksite doctrine is concerned because the argument that they're making is essentially sympathetic. Temp agencies just don't have that power to change the workplace. And that was that was their last argument right. and why we picked the case. Right. But, yeah. Right. So the lack of control defense, uh, TMD cites to a Fifth Circuit uh, federal court case so to support its argument uh, this case is the Central of Georgia Railroad Company versus the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. And in this case, they cite it to argue uh, that an employer may establish an affirmative defense by showing its own lack of control over the hazard. So in that case, 
uh, a railroad's employees were working on a site owned by a subcontractor, and uh, the court was trying to figure out who is liable for violating an OSHA standard requiring that the workplace be clean and sanitary. And so the railroad had uh, a contract with the subcontractor to maintain the tracks and the work site, and the subcontractor owned the property and retained jurisdiction over the tracks. So the railroad in that case argued that the subcontractor was, in fact, responsible for compliance with the standards. So that is the case that TMZ cites to. Uh, and TM, uh, TMD argues that they lack control over this worksite for a number of different reasons, uh, primarily because they they only visited the site a couple of times a year, just two to four times a year for site inspections. Uh, they didn't supervise the site at all. Uh, they also did not have any contractual rights to insist on changes being made to the machines. Uh, they also did not have a contractual right of access to alter the machines or any covenants that they could force on HMW to change the machines. And in fact, when uh, HMW settled with OSHA, they were the ones who investigated different guarding options, and they were the ones who implemented them. And so all of those facts, which the ALJ did not dispute those facts, uh, led to TMD concluding that we don't have control over this worksite, so we are not the responsible party here for keeping uh, our employees safe of, uh, from the hazard. So those are the, the facts that they pointed to to show a lack of control. And when the ALJ reviewed all of their defenses, they, they rejected every one of them and affirmed the citations. Uh, and, and they handled one at a time in a, about an 18-page opinion. Uh, essentially, they said, look, the employees uh, of TMD, they certainly did have access to a violative condition. They were operating the machinery. What TMD staffing had meant to say was, well, you know, we trained them to stay at a safe distance from the machines uh, the owner of Hightower, his name is actually, I think, John Hightower. Yes, right. Uh, he said, look, our operators, their hands, they do sometimes get within two or three inches of the unguarded point, but they're, they're trained to stand at a certain distance away from the machine, and that's supposed to keep uh, overall, uh, keep the worker safe, and they're supposed to remove their hand, even from the two or three inch proximity before the machine engages. Uh, the ALJ said, well, look, that's pretty good evidence that they were indeed in the zone of danger. And this idea that they didn't have access, physical access to the violative condition or the zone of danger is just not acceptable. Uh, also, I think that the one of the sh watershed cases on uh, machine guarding or the zone of danger uh, essentially suggests that it has to be reasonably predictable. This is a case called uh, Fabricators. Right. And uh, it, it essentially says, look, as long as it's reasonably predictable – that uh, that an employee could, even inadvertently, uh, have some part of his body under the zone of danger. It doesn't matter that they are indeed stationed outside of the zone of danger. And the LJ notices this and writes about it and says, you know, the machine guarding standard doesn't go to uh, a standard that allows an employer to rely on training to move your hands out just before the engagement of a machine. Uh, the machine guarding standard is exactly the opposite. It's designed to contemplate that an employer could uh, have employees who eventually succumb to fatigue or distraction or just make a mistake 
and that, or just happen to be walking by, and they might brush up against a, a machine. And the machine guarding standard is meant to protect employees from inadvertence, mm-hmm. not deliberate placement within the zone of danger. And so, so the ALJ simply rejects this idea that TMD staffing's employees don't have access to the zone of danger. Also, I, I think he rejected the idea that where they place their feet is any has anything to do with uh, the zone of danger because their hands are really the ones at risk, and as long as their hands can reach inside the zone of danger, training them to place their feet in a certain distance away from the machine is, is just not uh, instructive as to as to whether or not there was a zone of danger that would have required guarding. So the administrative law judge next looked at the idea that that maybe TMD staffing, as it argued, didn't have sufficient knowledge to assess whether or not there was a hazard or identify whether a machine was insufficiently guarded, being, after all, only a staffing company. And I think that the fact that was most damning to TMD's argument was that on a biannual basis that a TMD staffer came to Hightower's site and conducted an on-site survey, filled out a form, checked some boxes, and it was essentially a TMD staffing site inspection of the client site. And there was one particular uh, cluster of boxes that could have been checked where the site inspector had checked off saying that the machines were in properly working order. And right next to it was a box saying that the machines were properly guarded. That was left unchecked. One, one could read either as the site inspector knew what that box was for and had concluded that it was not properly guarded and so couldn't check the box, or that he or she just didn't know what it meant and ignored it or didn't notice it or omitted to, to deal with it. TMD's attorney argued, well, no, that, that was because I don't think she understood the significance of it, didn't know what it meant, or didn't, wasn't, didn't feel like she was probably trained to make that assessment, so she skipped that. But I think it is unfortunate that if, if she was untrained in how to make that assessment, that she was nevertheless asked to address it on a form, and she signed the form at the end. Uh, I think that you've either got to delete that from the form and put a disclaimer saying, we're not here to do a site inspection about safety and health compliance, or she had to have initialed it saying, not capable of performing this inspection. Uh, but, but the fact that this was one of the things that at least the form suggested TMD was examining the job site for, and on the other hand was arguing to the judge that we don't have the wherewithal the expertise to make this assessment, I think was uh, contradictory, and the judge rejected their argument about lack of knowledge. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Uh, other employers may have an opportunity to assert a lack of knowledge under different circumstances, but it's m- certainly more difficult if you're talking about a company that does twice annual inspections and has a specific blank on a form on this mm-hmm. specific issue. Right. It specifically had a box for unguarded uh, machines. Right. And so she didn't check it. And so they know that it wasn't guarded. Um, and so the ALJ concluded that not only uh, that not only they had actual knowledge, but constructive knowledge because they do these routine inspections for safety issues. Right. Right. And the judge flat out rejected the idea of unpreventable employee misconduct on the base and uh, and that was on the basis that when you when you look at machine guarding as I'd said before the the failure to comply with your training is precisely what the machine guarding standard is designed to be a secondary control against that and sometimes an employee uh, impulsively reaches to straighten out product and isn't trying to 
flagrantly disregard a safety rule, or maybe through fatigue, exhaustion, distraction is another one, or just inadvertently walking by, uh, happens to enter the zone of danger, that, that the failure to comply with training at that moment is not a suitable defense for employers because a machine guard is a simple fix that would prevent injury even in those circumstances. And, and I think that, that there is a clear record that that is indeed what the machine guarding standard uh, is meant to control against. So, so I think the administrative law judge was on solid footing with that. Uh, so that leaves us with the lack of control defense. The defense, the TMD staffing asserted that, look, we, we, don't ha- we can't go in there and fix the machine. We don't, it's not our machine. We can't just go in there with, with service people and, and tools and go making alterations to some of the company's hardware. Well, to that, the administrative law judge said, oh, and I, I should point out that TMD says we don't have that contractual right. Even if the law would have required it, we, we don't have that contractual right. We, it's not in the contract, and they submitted the contract in evidence. And to that, the administrative law judge says, look, the, you can't contract away your duties as an employer under the Occupational Safety and Health Act anyways. So I wouldn't have cared if you had it in the contract that you have no right to make changes to high towers machinery. That's not something you can contract away. It's not to suggest, by the way, that the administrative law judge said that they should have gone making changes to the machinery to install guarding. Uh, what the administrative law judge said was, if you can't bring a machine into conformity with the standard, as would be the case for a staffing company, then you nevertheless have a duty to protect your employees. That doesn't absolve you of your duty to protect your employee from the hazard that that machine creates. You could either direct or request that Hightower provide uh, installation of machine guarding, and in doing so, you could uh, create that written record that you had done everything you could to try and persuade them, and you could have submitted that into evidence, and it may have uh, had an impact on, on the total evidentiary body of uh, considerations that I, as a judge, had to make, or as a last resort, you could have told your employees that they're not allowed to use those machines until they're properly guarded. And if you couldn't fix them and Hightower didn't know how to fix them, you could have engaged a general contractor, a third-party general contractor, to come in and uh, either identify solutions or identify solutions and install them. Uh, but alternatively, you could have simply, if you're saying that that wasn't in the contract, the employer could have, the, the staffing company could have insisted on it at the contractual negotiation stage. And so not having it in the contract is certainly not a defense or evidence of lack of control. So, so the administrative law judge, I think, fairly quickly walked away from the opportunity to accept TMD staffing's uh, uh, proffer of a lack of control. I would uh, note, Javane, that the, the modern uh, multi-employer worksite doctrine concept flies in the face of this whole lack of control argument. After all, there's four different types of employers that OSHA has opined can be cited, Mm -hmm. and one of them is the controlling employer, the employer who can control and thereby abate a potential hazard. And then the other, there's there's somebody who has uh, ownership of the property, may have some ability to control that as well. But but then the other is the uh, exposing employer, Mm -hmm. and that whole concept acknowledges 
that that there are some employers that don't have control, but they're nevertheless exposing their employees to a hazard, maybe even willfully, not necessarily the case of TMD staffing, but hypothetically an employer could know that there's a hazard and send their employees in anyways, and you and that would be a violation, and you would not be able to defend that you couldn't control the hazard, so you just sent the employees in and prayed for the best. And that's the whole, I think, reasoning behind OSHA establishing, in its opinion, this uh, four styles of uh, employer that could be cited under the multi-employer worksite doctrine. So I think the idea of raising a lack of control defense, although it sounds good, mm-hmm. maybe when the first guy throws the idea out, it's it's really incredible, and it uh, it doesn't hold water in light of the multi-employer worksite doctrine uh, and the idea that there's a specific category for, for exposing employees who aren't in control of a hazard. And in in light of all of the cases that have come out under the multi-employer worksite doctrine, it was probably a very unfortunate argument to have made. I, I think it's safe to say that uh, TMD's better argument would have been under the idea of knowledge. And we've already talked about that, that yeah. TMD had some certain facts working against it. But, but it certainly is something that would have been more uh, profitable to explore more deeply or m- develop the evidence more thoroughly on that avenue, on the avenue of employer expertise. I mean, it really does defy common sense to expect staffing firms to, who maybe, you know, we're talking about Houston, which may have a f- cross-section of mm-hmm. almost every industry type in, in America right. somewhere within the Houston Ship Channel area. And here's a staffing firm that I think the, uh, the judge is expecting to have developed the expertise in the business line of each and every one of its dozens of clients. And that may be impractical. And it, it may be a little bit flip or dismissive for a uh, administrative law judge to say, well, then you can go get a contractor. Indeed, that may be more properly, just according, again, according to common sense, the province of the actual employer like Hightower who's in that space, that if they don't know how to solve it, maybe they should go get a subcontractor. And, and although I do appreciate the administrative law judge's argument that the, the contract itself is no defense for a staffing firm, Nevertheless, I think that there there has to be some cognition by the judges that that staffing firms simply can't mount that kind of expertise uh, on an industry-specific basis to be able to do a proper hazard assessment. I think that they've right. got to allocate the hazard assessment process, mm-hmm. the training of the employees, and the compliance uh, and the abatement of, of, for machinery or, or physical space to the employer who is engaging their staff. And, and maybe this isn't the best case for a judge to come out and lay out that doctrine. And maybe there are other cases that will come up where you'll be able to contrast the two decisions, the TMD staffing decision. But I, I still think that the lack of control argument was probably a dead end from the beginning. Right, especially since, again, you even if you don't have control over the work site, you still have to try and protect your employees through alternative means. And those alternative means, even if your contract doesn't allow you, there are still options. And so if TMD didn't have the authority to change the machines or hire an additional contractor, they could still uh, tell their employees don't operate on those machines or they can refuse to send their employees in. And so there is some flexibility there with, uh, with asking employers to protect their employees using reasonable alternatives. And so they could have figured something out. And so just because your contract doesn't allow you doesn't mean you can let your employees go into, you know, a dangerous workplace. Right, which brings us roundly to what employers should do. And Mm -hmm. that's the last bullet there where 
the employer should retain the authority contractually, but certainly would do so, should do so, even if it's not expressly in the contract, to pull the workers out of the hazardous situation uh, and should have the authority to exit the contract, that that should be a suitable grounds for termination if their client company is refusing to bring their uh, physical circumstance or process into compliance with those standards, that that would be a suitable grounds for the temp staffing company to to terminate. Mm -hmm. And I think other things that, that you and I have discussed here up on the slide that employers could do would be to conduct routine monitoring and to get a contracting uh, consultant who's more expert uh, on that specific industry or machinery, et cetera, to assist you with the the routine monitoring of the workplace and the processes. That may be difficult to do for larger staffing companies that have hundreds of clients to make the rounds adequately, uh, to to certainly allocate the training responsibility to the hiring employer, not the staffing employer, and to to work through the contract so that the, those allocations are uh, assigned properly, and that that OSHA compliance generally is allocated to the uh, assigning employer rather than the staffing company. Uh, those are, the, I think, the the steps that jump uh, off the top of my head or yours. I'm sure if you have other ideas, uh, and if, for those of you listening in the OSHA thirty thirty community, if you have other ideas as to what uh, employers should do in light of this decision, uh, we'd certainly be happy to hear about them. Uh, questions can be typed in, by the way, in the lower left-hand corner of your screen uh, where it says questions uh, or question and answers. We do have one question from a member of the OSHA 3030 community who's writing in right now saying, if the contracting company performs regular safety audits, would the staffing company be justified in relying on those audits? Well, I do think it's better than the TMD staffing situation where TMD staffing did its own monitoring and filled out its own forms. That certainly is harmful to the idea that TMD staffing didn't have knowledge of the hazard. I am mindful that the employer in any case, whether controlling, exposing, etc., that I think OSHA has the burden to show knowledge. And that's a constructive knowledge standard, as we've talked about in other episodes of the OSHA 3030, that the employer knew or with reasonable diligence should have known of a hazard, but I think it, it is reasonable for an empl- a staffing company to say, hey, I looked at these audits. They, they, they were required to send me those safety audits. I looked at them, and I, con- I followed up to see whether the issues noted in the audit were complied with or abated. Uh, uh, but, if you, but in that case, we're talking about a hypothetical where the staffing firm does not maintain any pretense of expertise on these issues. And as a continuation or extension of that logic, doesn't conduct any on-site monitoring, doesn't have forms where it requires their own monitors to check off on questions like machine guarding. It would certainly be a very different set of facts, and I would hope that in that case, when you're talking about a pure staffing firm, you might get a different decision. But I'd have to research whether or not that deci- a decision like that's already come out. I don't recollect one, and I'd look forward to a case like that coming up. I think it's safe to say, Javne, that it, if it did, it would be... Right. The subject of the issue. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, that said, I think that that's uh, the, the wrap-up on what employers should do in light of this argument about a lack of control of the workplace. Uh, and I'm thankful to all of you for sitting through another OSHA 3030 in the month of August 2018. More uh, information about OSHA law developments can be found on our website, on our LinkedIn pages. Uh, Javane, I know you have one. Larry Halperin, David Savati, uh, John Custis, and other uh, OSHA attorneys have LinkedIn pages as well as I, as so do I, and the group has one collectively called the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health page on LinkedIn. We also send out tweets on a rare occasion, less and less so, at Rathmonish, but you're welcome to join up. 
at Rathmanish, and this program is rebroadcast as a podcast. Uh, within a day or so, it's put out as a podcast, so if you subscribe, you will get that uh, podcast uh, downloaded your, on your phone automatically, as well as the other Cohen Heckman 3030 programs, which I'll talk about in one second. But I will say, if you have listened to the podcast and like it, please take time to like the podcast so that it, it can stay on the subscription service that comes out through iTunes and other subscription services. Uh, with that said, the next OSHA 3030 will see you in about a month in September, uh, September 26th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. And uh, you can get that information either at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, or if you've already subscribed or registered, you'll, you'll get an email. The only tuition we ask for for this program, which is complimentary to friends and clients of the firm, is that when you get that email invitation, please forward it on to three others who are in-house counsel responsible for OSHA law or other safety and health professionals. Each and every time you receive this email, please forward it on to three more people because the new members of our community are the lifeblood of the OSHA 3030 program. It's what will keep the program going for years and years to come, which I think we all benefit from. So please forward it on when you get this invitation. And as I've mentioned before, we have sister programs now, uh, the TOSCA 3030, which will be held on October 10th, 2018 at 1 p.m. Eastern, and the FIFRA 3030 uh, on a date to be determined. But if you've already subscribed, you'll get that email as well. So those are the three 3030 programs here at Cowan Heckman. And I am thankful to all of you for participating in this month's 3030. I'm thankful to you, Javanet Nakumaram, for participating with me. And I look forward to seeing you all next month. Until then, stay safe.